0: Welcome to the Mount Bike Coaching Podcast, Donuts and Bikes. I'm Christian, and I'm Paul, and we're here to discuss the techniques and skills we use to progress our coaches, our riders, and ourselves to be more confident, competent, unlock performance, and have more fun on our mountain bikes. Hey, Paul, how's it going today? Good, man. Yeah, we're in
1: Australia, and it's uh, it's snowing, it or not. Wow. <laughs>
0: Yeah, like almost uh, coming into late spring, early yeah. summer in Australia and got some snow.
1: Yeah, we're in Threadbow, uh, running a, running some PMBA courses here. And uh, yeah, we unfortunately had to postpone the tech course because uh, the the bike park closed because of the snow. So I'm sitting by the fire looking at snowy mountains, which is completely backwards. That's what Canada is supposed to
0: be like right now. But it's the way of the world. Yeah. We've got early winter here too, North Carolina. It's been very cold and uh, our our ski ski mountains are open. It's been exciting to make that switch from biking to biking to skiing and kind of see if that old adage, "skiing's just like riding a bike, kind of comes
1: <laughs> Get this out. out Does that, uh, that work? Yeah. In the attic.
0: Yeah. Hey, I'm excited for this uh this episode. Uh we have uh, coach Shannon Rademacher here with All Terrain Cycles and we'll be talking about coaching. Um, from a couple of different um continental perspectives so really cool to to see to see what we get into with this so shannon welcome to the mountain bike coaching podcast donuts and bikes excited to have you
2: oh thanks for having me it's great to be here i'm a big fan of donuts as well as bikes so
0: fantastic well you're in the right spot yeah. <laughs> hey can you tell us a little bit about your background uh as a as a mountain biker first
2: I uh, got into biking as a kid, like like you know, like any any of us, and um, got into BMX in you know early '80s. So started racing BMX at the young age of six, and uh, back then, you know, mountain bikes were well, kind of evolving, I guess. But um, when I really got into mountain biking it was as a teenager, when I was about sixteen, when I first uh, discovered the world of mountain bike racing, and uh, yeah, got. Went to the local club, started doing some cross-country racing, and then then uh, did some downhill racing, and, yeah, just fell in love with it.
0: Awesome. And for our listeners, can you give us a snapshot of what you do professionally on on bikes now?
2: Uh, today's world. So, yeah, run uh, my own business with basically bike shops uh, that have, you know, your typical sales hire repairs, and out of those stores we do bike tours and um, coaching as well. So, yeah, we've got myself, here you know, I'm out there, you know, leading and managing and organising a lot of the the coaching programs and then obviously conducting quite a few myself um and i kind of specialize myself in the higher end stuff these days and allow my other coaches to kind of do our beginner intermediate products uh in our different locations and yeah some sort of mentel them through and you know as the industry's grown like uh, you know we've got more product on offer and more demand so uh it's it's really
0: really um thriving here in australia Curious if you could describe to us what um the first the mountain biking is like in Australia. So for me never having having been there, like what what could I expect as a mountain biker for the, the quality and style of riding?
2: Uh good question. It's probably a really good mixed bag of riding here. Um the terrain here is certainly different to any other place in the world. Um the locations vary from alpine to desert to your bushland to your pines uh soils is always different everywhere you go um but yeah most of our trails like you know the original tracks were all very raw hand-built stuff and you know that's where a lot of us grew up just riding you know these four-line gravity tracks or cross country trails where it's all just something we've just gone out and cut in the bush To now there's Multitudes of bike parks popping up. That's been built by professional builders um, with machines. You know, a lot of, a lot of flow with a bit of tack, a lot of jumps, things like that are popping up around Australia. So you, you really got to get the full experience, um, and of the different trail builders too. Like every trail builder in Australia's got its own flavour. So you, you kind of start to get a feel of, you know, what their style is as well. Their trail building. So yeah, it's
0: it's quite diverse. Awesome. What about the mountain bike culture community? What's what's the general vibe with with mountain biking in, in Australia?
2: Pretty big. Uh, everywhere you go, wherever there's a trail centre, it's just full of hype, um, especially in a place like Threadbow. It's definitely, you know, it's the only place that, you know, has a chairlift access biking in Australia. So it's we're here just on the opening weekend and it's pumping. Like, you know, the people are stoked to be, catching a chairlift, riding long gravity tracks. Um, you know, it's even surprised me. I hadn't been here since last season. And, yeah, it was just, you yeah, know, for opening weekend, it was just a really cool culture, vibe. Everyone's just socially engaging. It's good to catch up with friends, high fives, uh, seeing people we haven't seen for a while. So, yeah, anywhere you go where there's a major hub or a centre or a bike park here, it's always – it's a growing culture of just good times. It's pretty cool, like – for me, cause I, I come out
1: like most years to Australia and I've been riding in Australia since 98 when I lived in Alice Springs for a year. And, uh, it's kind of cool cause I go away and then I come back. So it's almost like, you know, the uncle that doesn't see the nephew for a year. <laughs> right. And right. They're like, Oh my God, you've grown so much, but like no one else really realizes that the nephew's grown and kind of looks a bit freaky now. Um, and it's sort of the same here. Like, every time I come back, like, it just, you see that change. And, um, yeah, I mean, if I go back to, like, late 90s in Australia, like, it was a pretty core cool scene, eh? It was, like, mm. kind of similar to UK or Canada. Like, it was the just the dudes going riding with other dudes kind of scenario. It was a pretty core cool scene. But, but now, like, just, yeah, the other day at Threadbow when, we were riding on opening day, like it was pretty average weather and there was a snowstorm coming in the next day and it was just going off. There were just, I've never seen this many people at Threadbow. It was sick. And no, it's the same last time I went back to like Cap Creek in Brisbane. There were like families riding, bunch of e-bikes, like two new car parks. Like the scene is, um, rapidly growing every year and it's and the, and the culture and even just the diversity in the sport as well it's kind of mimicking what's happening elsewhere and it's it's amazing to see it it's so rad come to australia
0: that was awesome Sounds awesome shannon uh, how did you get into mountain bike instruction and coaching
2: yeah, like for me, uh, back in high school, um, I sort of didn't really know what I wanted to do career path wise. Like I was obviously into bikes and I loved riding and racing. Um, and I nearly went down the path of a carpentry apprenticeship, you know, and becoming a builder. Um, but my out to red teacher at high school, you know, we sort of said, well, what what is out there and, you know, where can things go? And obviously I saw that he was teaching out to red and, um, you know we were on went on many school camps and i you know I saw there's a you know people taking you know leaders are taking people out on these trips and i was like cool that's a cool job um so yeah my outdoor ed teacher pointed me towards some courses that you can go study you know, outdoor education or outdoor leadership is probably what's called these days uh and ended up in Mount Buller and uh where there was an outdoor education course which basically taught you how to lead groups uh, in whether it's climbing, uh, well, rock climbing, bushwalking, paddling. It wasn't so much mountain biking back then, but, you know, it got incorporated down the track, but that's where I sort of found a career path. I was like, cool, I can do this in uh, as a job, as a career, um, you yeah. know, and mountain biking was definitely a passion, and it was like, cool, one day I want to do this full-time, and that's where it sparked.
1: Yeah, yeah, I was thinking, like, if you can have a sort of rewind our minds back a little bit and think of like where coaching was when you started in Australia and maybe speak to kind of kind of where it was and the work you've done or the progression in the industry and kind of where it is now, like if you can kind of rewind and maybe just tell us sort of the evolution of coaching in Australia over the last 10, 15
2: years. Yeah, sure. Um. Yeah, it's definitely like from 20 years ago when I first thought of, hey, this could be a job. Uh There wasn't much of an industry back then for it. There was no one out there coaching. There was a kind of a few key players like your Scotty Sharples and maybe some of these other coaches mm-hmm. that were teaching uh, uh, mm-hmm. and coaching like more XC strength conditioning style coaching. But there was nothing really skills-based in Australia uh, back then. It wasn't and- really for like...
1: Not really for the recreation rider. There was some of that kind of elite coaching for
2: downhill racing. Pretty much. sharples and stuff. But Because back then, really, the only mountain biking that existed was just racing. Um, yeah. It wasn't really the enthusiast go out and riding. It wasn't, you know, just you know, the family going for a mountain bike ride back then. It was just purely if you knew about the scene uh, and or you are in it, that was it. Uh, it was a very mm. small core cool crew back in the late 90s, early 2000s um but yeah for me like you know the mountain biking sort of grew organically in australia um, more through uh taking school groups out or it was like a corporate group it was kind of a pre-organized very beginner tame experience product um where i think for a lot of people you can learn a lot from just leading groups um as a coach and how do you manage those those groups is a well, I found I got a lot from that where it's, you know, you're comfortable in front of talking to all sorts of people, kids, adults, um, being able to lead groups safely, uh, be able to provide a fun experience at the end of the day where it's half a day or a multi-day program overnight. So it built a big base for me. As is that, is that when you were like working with TAFE and you were – tell us
1: that, about that a little bit. You were – Running courses or teaching for that, train, training for that?
2: Yeah, so once I got out of my freelance world of just working in the industry racing bikes and, you know, got back from – I actually spent a stint in Whistler and was, you know, put myself in the bike park there and was coaching and put, had a really good time there. But when i come back from there and started my own business – um got into the TAFE system and the TAFE system is uh where people can come and learn same thing what I went through and learn how to become a leader and by this time mountain biking was a module within that course and uh yeah so I was contracted to come and teach these uh upcoming students how to become mountain bike guides and teach some basic skill uh within their modules and I was and by then I was using the PMBI way uh within my teaching uh to teach these guys how to ride uh and then how to how to guide safely as well. So yeah, that that and that grew. And so I started to push that into the TAFE system and I started working for a few different TAFEs and starting to develop you know this interest for students to to hey, this and telling them uh, there's a career out there in mountain bike coaching. And from there, a lot of these students, you know, I still employed them, uh, or they've gone on to bigger and greater things, or they're working in industry for other companies. Um, so from that point, you know, the skills based teaching side of it grew as well. Uh, obviously, when I did my first PMBI, and Paul came out from to Australia and had a few of my out buddies, and we did a course, and we're like, hey, this is cool. Like, it works. It's a cool structure. It's cool content. And then we started using it in our own. World of coaching, we're like this works and got instant results. And then down the track, so- that was a that was that that course
1: where, was that the one where it was like pouring with rain at Mount Buller or something? Was it that one? Yeah,
2: it was that one? It was pissing and rain. And I ended cold. up like
1: the last day. I'd run out of clothes, so I was, we were in that gym. Yeah, we ended up awesome. inside a sports center gym doing maneuvers because <laughs> it's so cold and bruising. it was so cold. I, was, I think I was like. The only thing I had left was a pair of board shots that so wasn't like in <laughs> mud or dry. It was like totally not how you normally run a course, but it was like extreme uh, circumstances. But we made it work.
2: Made it work, and we that yeah, that was, that was my first experience to PMBI. And um yeah, from there it's just like, Hey, this is cool, like you know, I wanna <laughs> I wanna
0: learn more. Yeah, so, hey, pri- prior to your introduction to the <clears throat> the P N B I methodology and, and content, what were you lo- relying on as a, as a coach or an instructor in terms of is this skills for, you know, how, how did you interact with these, these, um, these groups, these kids?
2: Yeah. I just used what I kind of knew and maybe what everyone else was kind of saying on how you ride a bike, you know, uh, the good old attack position, you know, like just getting the attack position, you know, just bend your elbows and knees and ride your bike. Like um, just, Lean into the corner like just the old school methodology that you know none of us knew otherwise how to teach skill right so um yeah. well and you, you had such a good background like you had a pretty elite background in racing from what
1: i understand like that must have helped you in a way kind of dissect things and figure out techniques because obviously you would have gone through quite a lot of uh i guess and that self-analysis to try and race bmx and downhill as as well
2: as you did. Yeah, it gives you a good understanding of, you know, how I rode the bike. And so I sort of used kind of what I thought I was doing on the bike back then to try and take that to to the world of, you know, the people out there who wanted to learn and get faster. So, you know, I was running some junior clinics and some junior gravity camps um, prior to, you know, the world of PMBIA. And for me, I was just going with what I felt comfortable confident with and what worked um obviously i was doing some google searching around the world just trying to find out information and i uh, learned a little bit with my time in whistler as well so i took that experience on board as well and then sort of just packaged it all together to what i knew before i you know went and jumped on the pbi course and yeah i mean it works it kind of works and it did work and then sometimes you're like oh it didn't quite work so you kind of end up just tweaking or adjusting you know to make them faster um or just stronger on the bike but yeah once that pmbi stuff got into my head i was like wow this is this is it and uh from there it just was like cool i want more and and the coaching
0: just got better for sure do you all sorry do you all, yeah. okay uh do you all remember it in you know, any of the from the 90s the um, printed not bike instructional books how to's do you all remember seeing those
2: Early
1: in that, I I don't really, but I like I I remember just just like every man bike magazine for me growing up was like a mini Bible. So like I would read those things cover to cover, and you know they always had, you know every now and then they'd have like a how to article, or well, a lot of time I would just look at the the pictures. I would just kind of study the pictures and look at like. What position they were in, or how much they were leaning the bike, or where they were pointing their knees, or I, I don't know. That's just sort of how my brain worked. I kind of I read the articles, but a lot of it I just was was visual for me. I just, I think I kind of learned a lot about technique just by watching videos and and my buddies and and looking at pictures in magazines.
2: Mm. I don't know what. Yeah, some of those how-to's were interesting to read back then. Like you know, you're reading it and you're like thinking, well, as a rider too, I'm thinking that doesn't – sometimes it makes sense, sometimes it didn't make sense. Yeah, so, totally. You know, like, yeah. Taking parts of what did make sense and putting it into your own know, coaching world. But for me, yeah, I, I think it does, I was just doing it by feel, what I knew as a rider, like how I rode the bike, and then I was at that time trying to articulate it in words to to teach it. Um, but, yeah, back then those how-tos and, yeah, back then that was the only way we we didn't have, you know, internet that had, or YouTubes, and we didn't have all these Googles. It's a TikToks. (laughs) TikToks. You know. (laughs) Whatever that is. We didn't have all these interactions that we do now, right? So back then, magazines was the only way in Australia to connect with the rest of the world. So, yeah. And I was always trying to get the latest mag and read all up on the products and, you know, and then every now and then there was some how-tos from, you know, some pro riders and then, I think uh, even like local legend uh, here in Australia, Jared Rando was doing some how tos, and he still does a few today. Um, and every now and then, you get some other random that does a how to, and even still to this day, you read them, you're like, mm, yeah, yeah. <laughs> not sure if it, it actually works that way. But to the reader, the you know the unbeknowns to their knowledge, they're just kind of like, oh wow, cool, I'm gonna try. Yeah, it. it's you crazy. Know. Like I read thinking
1: about this now like i read a magazine last year i won't i won't say names but it was an american popular american mountain bike magazine and it was last year so it's 2021 this isn't like 1995 or something and in the article it was literally saying um be careful of using your front brake try not to use your front brake <laughs> because you <laughs> might go over the handlebars which is like, oh my god, this is like thirty years ago. And then the other the other thing it was saying was, you know, when it gets steep, lean back. I mean, it was shocking. I was like, really? Like this is this is 2021 and like one of the biggest mountain bike magazines is still like putting out this nonsense, basically. But,
0: well, but you you still I won't go down
1: that road. I'll get I'll go start getting like steam <laughs> start coming out of my ears if I
0: go down that but, road. But, but there, there's a there's a phenomenon there with with how knowledge gets passed passed down and disseminated where that's, you know, there's um, popular sayings and they somebody sees it somewhere and then they, they tell their friends, that's what you do. You get, you lean and get back and, you know, you still yeah. hear it, you hear it on the trails all the time. You know, it's, it's it's really wild just to see how that just, those things just continue to linger, you know, throughout our, our, our culture.
2: Yeah. I throughout mean, even when we were in Canberra last week and you just hear you know, the average Joe going for Robbie's mates and they're like, you know, it's kind of self-teaching each other and they're like, yeah, just go faster. You know? <laughs>
0: right.
2: Yeah. Go fast and pull up. You know. Right. So well, and then there's
1: that sign there next to the drops that, with a picture and it says like, as you go off the drop, just lean back. Yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and you're just like, no. <laughs> that doesn't work. Really? On oh, yeah. on a on a sign in a in a park in a bike park.
1: Yeah, the picture in it. I mean, it, the intention is great and it's meant well, but yeah, uh, you know, it was it just wasn't consulted with a with a proper coach. It was, yeah, but we see those quite a bit.
0: Thanks for listening, everyone. Hope you're enjoying the podcast. If you want to learn more about us, please check out our first episode, which digs into who we are, what we do, and our background in coaching and mountain bike industry. You can also check us out on Instagram at Donuts and Bikes or at our podcast mountainbikecoachingpodcast.busprot.com and now back to the show.: Well, maybe this is a, an interesting segue to talk about um, PMBI, the kind of the consolidation of, of, of the six skills, and you know why, why that is of value to, to the coaching world, because we're talking about all these, these different techniques and magazines and you know, one of the books I learned from was this William Neely. <laughs> Mountain biking. If you remember these cartoon books, you know he yeah. was a North Carolina yeah. North Carolinian in the early, you know ninety two. Yeah. I remember seeing that book in my cubby hole when I was working in North Carolina. Like, it's yeah, it's very camp kind of kind of oriented yeah. oriented. But the this there's, there's a, di- a diagram in here of a uh, front wheel skidding for turns and how to do this and you know uh, <laughs> using your yeah (laughs) maybe that's level four (laughs) level four or five but yeah i can't do that (laughs) but the 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 point is like there's 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 there were there were so many of these how-to it was very overwhelming and shannon like you you mentioned when you took the pmbi level one when i took the level one it was like this moment of clarity it's like oh yep six skills let's go (laughs)
2: <laughs> yeah it just made so much sense hey like basically just that information even on day one of the course back then and we, we all just looked at each other like a really solid crew with us and we we're just like oh, like you're just like mind blown and just like oh man it's so refreshing to hear yeah good words good content and the six skills it really made sense so yeah it was um
1: it was interesting for me because when i was in North Carolina I I really like started teaching mountain biking properly and we had a few coaches and it it was immediately apparent to me it's like unless we create some sort of system like we'll all be teaching different things and these kids are coming back people are coming back every day for lessons so if we're teach them one thing one day or they have one coach one day and then another coach the other day and things keep changing. It would, it just sort of, it was immediately obvious that we had to create some kind of system. And that was sort of the, I guess, the embryo for PMBIA and and all the courses we have and all the um, content that we have. And um, it's been cool in Australia just to see, um, not to toot our own horn or anything, but it's been, or maybe, maybe it's a better way to ask the question, Shannon, like for you, what what's ha, how has the impact in the Australian coaching market been since, you know, bringing, bringing instructor courses to Australia? Like, I mean, I think the first course we brought to Australia was oh nine or 2010. So it's been about 12, 13 years of, instru- you know, professional <clears throat> instructor courses in
2: Australia, like, can you speak to sort of the impact that's had or? Yeah, definitely. Like, I mean, personally, like, it just it just gave me a way to teach progressive teaching of mountain biking. Like, before it was kind of like just winging it in some ways of like, hey, I'm just going to teach this. But once this was ingrained in and this, as you said, for like a, a system was in place of like the layer of skills and how we teach the skills and then progression, for me that just – Gave me this uh, longevity of like how I can teach people safely and have more fun, and then for me, I just started talking to people about it and telling people, "Hey, look, this works." And obviously, being in the industry, I was just like, "Guys, like this is the this is what we need to do. This is our way forward of professionalising industry of teaching good content." delivering safe, fun, learning experiences for people. Uh, and, yeah, from there I just started to sell more industry and um, and once everybody else, you know, the other courses have occurred, more people are just saying the same thing. They're just like, wow, this is great. And then from there it just kind of grew. It's a lot of word of mouth. and It just became word of mouth and I think, you know, just for me, like the believability of the, the products and then obviously the instant results once you use it. It's it's easy to you know tell other people like you know word of mouth is your best selling tool. Selling tool, and for me, I just started telling everybody else and um, you know friends or other industry people and started to try and feed it out there more. And yeah, I think for now in Australia, like it's become the go to course. And years later, you know, if we think what we'd say twelve years ago, you know, for now, like every state in the country wants it, uh, clubs want it, uh, businesses want it. Um, there's huge demand for the courses because they know there's progression, which is what people want, uh, return of customers, um, good experiences. So all in all, that qualification now gives people confidence to deliver quality products.
1: I think that's a good word, like confidence. Like for you as an operator now, if you're, if you're either partnering with another operator or bringing in a coach, like how – how is that for you as a as an operator now compared to say like ten years ago, like is it that there's just a larger pool of coaches or is it that there's just you can trust the coaches a bit
2: of both like yeah, it's a bit of both like you know if I know someone's done a course, I can easily employ them because it's been the same quality you know course that you know it's been taught for years, right. So I'm like, cool, you've done your level one, you can come work for me. And then what I tend to do now is just a, a little refresher, you know, depending on when they did it last and, you know, for me just to make sure if they're working for me, the quality of the product's good. So I'll come and kind of do a bit of training on how I run programs within my business. And then for those, you know, if they haven't, if they come to me, which quite happens a lot, people reach out and go, hey, Shan, how do I, I want to coach, I want to learn, I want to get into it, how do I do it? And I'm just, well, first thing, go to a PBI level one course. Um, you know, get yourself a first aid ticket. You know, so I give them the first, you know, point of call of what they need. And then, hey, once you've done that, then you've got a job. Um, and that's for me. It's a it's – a, basically if I'm looking at it, employing anybody, it's like, cool, have you got this ticket, this ticket, this ticket? And it's an easy given because um, you can trust that the training that's been provided is – High quality, And if they have passed, and as a course conductor, you know, the level is is a really solid standard. So, you know, and every course conductor that's out there in the world is training to the standard. So you, you know you're going to get a good coach. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, it makes it easy for any business, not just mine, but any business mm-hmm. to go, cool, I've got confidence in you to employ you to do a good job mm-hmm. because, because you've done a PBI course.
1: I mean, that's what's cool now. Like when I come back to Australia now, that's – it's, it's not just sort of two or three operators. There's, there's, there's a, there's way more operators, but it's not even that. Like I look at some of the operators like Joe and Matt and Cam and, and even down with what Reese is doing at Medina and like, it's the quality of operators too. Like every, every, and I think partly because there's that culture of like, like now there's a culture of, what what's acceptable standards if you're gonna come into this industry? What are the prerequisites if you're if you're gonna go out there and teach biking? Now there's a culture and the, the culture itself almost kind of creates that self uh policing where everybody knows that like you should be certified um whether it's a PMBI course or maybe another course but you should at least have a minimum certification you should at least have first aid in and uh, I think the other outcome I've seen is just um, a resource to help get more bums on bikes like I think I think trail centers and trail building and we talked a little bit about this in our last podcast like the development and progression of trails has really helped make mountain biking more fun, more accessible, more inclusive um but then I think at the same time coaching has has had a huge. Mm huge hand in that like how would you sort of pair the coaching with the trail development the last few years like have you seen the two really sort of connect or do you feel like it's really been more just the trail development or more the coaching or have you seen kind of the two
2: evolve at the same time i think in their own worlds they've evolved but they've never come they've never crossed paths yeah i just think that we as the coaching world or any kind of tour operator that runs tours or experiences coaching on man bike trails yeah i think there's a we need to connect somehow with the builders and you know i've had some chats with you know company like world trail and just sort of say hey can you guys start thinking about or maybe talk to us operators on how we use trail centers because what we're finding is it's actually quite hard you've built this wicked product for the rider but it's actually hard to operate on so to coach or you know, like skills parks are in the wrong spot. Um, the well, extent- like like here in Threadbow the other day, like can yeah. I talk about that one? Yeah, it's so, a good yeah. example. For instance, like, you know, you got this amazing bike park, but for coaching, say, higher-end uh, skills development like jumping, the first jump really or tabletops that looks like a sessionable area is halfway down the trail and you have to ride, you know, a pretty solid blue flow track to get to it. Before you can actually teach. Um, So, for you know, if you want to teach people how to jump, like you've actually got to go up the lift, ride down the track before you actually get to this trail center. Um, Whereas, yeah, it'd be nice to have it at the bottom of the lift or at the top of, or somewhere where it's more accessible to and away off the track that where people can, you know, coaches can session. Uh, a jump park without other riders bombing past you. That's key so, too.
1: And, and not even just for coaches, e- even just for riders. Yeah, it's so a safety that, thing, right? Yeah, because I was saying in the last podcast, like if, e- even if you just forget coaching and students, if if but if you want to make something just safer for Joe Bloggs, mm. uh to go learn on, then it's going to be the same thing. If, if there's some jumps off to the side, that rider, whoever she or he is, can can feel safe, they can session a couple of jumps without, you know,
2: being in the middle of the trail. Exactly. So there's a few of these popping up around the place where skill centres are away from the trailhead. Like, you know, for any new persons of sport or, you know, even for just families just to hang out and the parents can watch their kids, the skill sparks too far from the trail centre or it's kind of out of the way. So Mm. I think, you know, maybe it's something that we can look at, you know, in this Mm. coaching world that we can start connecting with trail builders say, so, hey, can you guys sort of think about when you're designing the trails, maybe just some offshoots here for, you know, a skills area here or a flat open area here or, you know, let's let's start looking at other designs rather than just a cool trail network for the riders. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think, really think it's definitely time. I think you probably around the world, you know, it's probably the same thing. Like, Yeah, I mean, it's,
1: I'd say so. Like, yeah, it's not unique to Australia, like America, Canada, UK wherever i go like it's it's the same thing like trail builders are building some really cool stuff but if they just if we just had a stronger link it wouldn't cost any more to Mm -hmm. build it to make it more suitable for learning or coaching it wouldn't it wouldn't change the cost of it but it would work better for more
2: people Definitely, definitely would work. And as there's more operators popping up too, like, you know, so many more people, so we need this space because at the moment, like I'm at Mount Buller, for instance, where I operate a lot of the time, we have a a pretty big women's festival, but we're limited by the trail network and the space we have to use. So we can only get to a certain capacity before there's too many coaching groups on the trail. Mm. So because there isn't any pullouts, it's all just single track, it's either up or down. So, and there's not much space on the side of the tractor session. So, we're kind of hit a limit now, like we would love to do more, but we can't because the trail centre actually doesn't allow us to do more. Hmm. So, and if, if, say, another operator was up there on the same weekend, there's just no space. Hmm. So, yeah, there's definitely some challenges there in the world as, you know, coaching's growing and then, you know, bike parks are growing and there's demand for coaching's growing. So, it's, yeah, exactly. it's a cool thing it's a it's a good problem it's, to have it's it's a great, so, a, it's a great problem question to have. like it, it kind of just as Shannon was
1: talking there it kind of made me think like in the us from your perspective like how has does what Shannon's saying is that is that mirroring what you're seeing or hearing in the us um you know if you had to compare you know put Australia and the us on the table and compare them both like either from just coaching perspective like how would you sort of weigh the two together?
0: I think we are, it's especially, I mean, my perspective is obviously rooted in North Carolina um, primarily. So we're starting to see the intersection between the two that that we're, we're talking about here. And I think that what's happening is that the the land manager, the property owner, the resort owner are starting to come around to the idea that built, the trails need to be built to the base, um, the, ba- the base customer, you know, of, of what what you're trying to grow as in terms of the product. And so I think that we're, we're starting to see an understanding that it's not just the elite riders and the, and the gnarly trails that need to be built, but, you know, how can the, the resort, the trail system be used for teaching and for people to grow and, and um, appreciate the sport even more? And so we're, we're starting to see that on some, on, on public lands and a bit, of, a bit on the, on the, the private resorts as well here. And I, I think that this will, is the way forward. I honestly, I, I mean, it, 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 has to be um, that, that recognition that we've got to get people into the sport and to do that, it's got to be safe and it's got to be predictable we need some consistency with, you know, how, how the jumps are sized and and all that and, and ways to, for our, our, the coach, the coaches, the operators to actually to do their work in a way that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I
1: I feel like it's sort of a natural progression. I think as the coaches evolve um, or as the trails evolve, you know, it, it opens up doors for more coaching and more operators, but as, as, coaching continues to evolve there'll be more feedback for the trail centers and the trail builders so I feel like that that kind of evolution is is it's naturally like both those pillars are going together like but one thing I was thinking from like coaching from like if you compare like coaching in the U.S. to Australia like one thing I see the U.S. has is it has more traveling camps so if you think of like the Trek Dirt Series especially back in the day. I mean, they're, they're they're one of the bigger mountain bike coaching companies in North America. And, um, you know, they're they're pretty well known in those circles and, and they have a pretty cool model, just a weekend camp and they, they travel around and ladies all ride with Lindsay Richter. They have a similar model now. Um, and I think programs like that have really helped increase the inclusivity of mountain biking. And, but not even that, just the, the, the reach, the availability of a coach. So I think that's something Australia hasn't yet um, had, like, you know, maybe there's a idea for you there, Shannon, but, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but well, can I think you of- you're familiar with Trek their series? Right. And like, Is there a reason why you think maybe like Australia hasn't seen uh, an operation like that yet? Or if it did, like would that really help coaching or the availability of coaching in Australia?
2: Uh, It certainly would help and drive that, you know, because they're kind of a fun environment to be in, right? And you kind of, yeah, people kind of like attract, get attracted to those environments. But yeah, it's like a weekend. Yeah. Um, Like I've been running a gravity camp at Mount Buller for over 10 years, you know, and it's a camp, it's three days. And it's – in Australia, it's very hard to kind of replicate that because you don't have – some of the trail centres aren't ready for it or the demand's not there, so – there's definitely been an idea of mine to try and take my stuff on the road. Like yeah. I was actually here at Threbo back in 2019 talking to him about bringing my cramp to Threbo as well. Yeah. Because it has the same sort of products and feel. You can stay in a lodge, you get catered for, all the coaches, it's all that inclusive like environment yeah. and you've got the trails to cater. Yeah um so yeah i mean obviously we got hit with covid and the world turned upside down but certainly yeah it's just time and patience like i've got a million ideas i'd love to do that i've seen overseas but mm. like, just australia's not ready for some of that yet and particularly <laughs> we don't have the coaches like even for me to run the gravity camp to have high quality coaches there yeah pretty rare at the moment
1: we need we need more like level 2 and level 3 certified
2: yeah, and yeah. most of those now who have got certification have their own business. So they're right. doing their own thing, which is cool. But I I bring them into my products to go, well, I know you're good. Yeah. I want you on my product as well. And yeah. So I'm working with the other coaches in Australia to try and grow the scene. And they're they're more, they're like, yeah, I'm there, Shane, because they want to learn and be part of this environment. Mm. So eventually I'd love to have, you know, go to yeah, you know, bring it back to Fredbo, you know, have a crack and then, you know, Canberra, you know, I've spoken to the crew there. And then yeah, go to these centres that now have enough product in an environment to do that.
1: I think I think the other challenge Australia has is just its sheer size. Like mm. it's massive, it's mahusive, it's huge. So I think sort of a traveling roadshow in in Australia inherently has a couple more challenges with just costs and logistics. Mm. But I, I I definitely think it's it's a my feeling is that it's definitely uh ready for it fairly soon if if not now then fairly Mm. soon um for a product like that um but yeah like you say i think that's the next shift for us the next phase in australia and new zealand is 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 um increasing the access Mm. to the higher level certifications and more i mean that's partly why i'm here now training course conductors but yeah we're running more air courses
2: more tech courses so we can get one of those level two and three yeah that's exactly where we australia is sitting right now we've got to a point where there's enough coaches who have been out there now who want to develop their coaching further and Mm. we're starting to see you know some more hiring coaches you know out there and it's great to see the industry evolve from Mm. 20 years ago to now it's you know it's amazing like for me i'm just like yeah like it's happening it's it's awesome and to spend time with you know with paul and and obviously and be now mentor for the other course conductors and coaches in Australia. It's it's a really exciting place to be. And like obviously the product that now that can come out of that is uh is endless. So because we have more bike parks, we have more trail centers that are legalized. Um there's more supportive services around these parks in Australia whereas before they were just a trail network with nothing there.
1: Yeah. So Yeah, it's like the infrastructures there. Yeah. Now.
2: Infrastructures yeah. around them. Um Australia's more uh accepted to the bike culture now like you know, 10 even just 10 years ago it was kind of like a, a new thing. So was, yeah. you had to tread water a little bit about how much you did push. Yeah. Whereas now it's like every council or land manager is, is acceptable, accepts man biking. And yeah. They kind of want it. Like it's yeah. now, it's a want, it's a need. We want it. They get that it's, it's good a, for the community. It's a tourism driver. Yeah. It brings money. Uh, yeah. It's not as perceived high risk as it used to be. We're like, you know, back in the 90s when we were like, man biking's sick. You know, you got Bender jumping off cliffs and DVDs <laughs> right, and you're seeing right. it's just hucked to Flat. Um, because that was the perception, right? Like for us, like and for me, I'm like, whoa, like, did that guy just do that? Or that's cool. Um, but you know, that's the image that mountain biking did set back in the 80s and 90s.
1: Yeah, that Whereas, extreme, that extreme. I never liked that, that whole extreme yeah. thing that always bugged me. But.
2: You know, so when you see all the, the North Shore videos that come out, and a lot of my inspiration came out of Canada, right? So oh yeah, all those videos and you know from those guys that developed and that pushed the boundaries of, of mountain biking yeah. that's what i grew up watching but now people have got access to trail networks and go like, hey mountain biking's quite fun it's enjoyable it's safe it's yeah there's these green tracks now and you know when you've got trail centers now coming closer to population in australia it's now created this environment where people want to learn um and i've been waiting and waiting for years for this Market to occur in Australia to start, you know, that they want to come. Hey, I've just bought a bike. I want to get a lesson to learn how to ride it.
1: Thanks for listening, everyone. Hope you're enjoying the podcast. If you want to learn more about us, please check out our first info episode, which digs into who we are, what we do, and our background in the coaching and mountain bike industry. You can also check us out on Instagram at Donuts and Bikes, or our podcast website is the mountain bike coaching podcast buzzsprout.com all right back to the show so i think the other thing that's different to america and australia is like america the culture of taking lessons is is a bit healthier it always has been like americans you know they're, they're quite smart sometimes like <laughs> especially the ones in north carolina like they're, they're quite good at like saying well hey you know i don't know this or I'm new to this maybe I'll get a lesson like I'll get a golf lesson or a whatever tennis lesson and, and they're quite good at getting lessons whereas I feel like in the UK and Australia the culture is definitely a little bit more like ah uh, you know like she'll be right. like I'll just chase my we'll, we'll oh, figure yeah. it out yeah like it, it's not I, the same
0: well I'm I'm really interested I'm surprised and by that, that or no you, I, no I don't <laughs> Yeah, I, I think. I mean, my perception was that you know, in the all my trips to Canada, the the instruction is more accept, open, and accepted there, and well, is
1: that's because you come into Whistler.
0: Well, for sure, which for is sure. a weird
1: bubble of weird people. <laughs>
0: <laughs> De- <laughs> definitely. That that being said, though, the I I do think you're right about in some arenas like golf and perhaps skiing. Americans are are very much more open to, to take a lesson, but the availability of of bikes, you know, and historically like in North Carolina, we, it wasn't until very, very recently that we had anybody doing any instruction like, Mm. or let alone coaching. And, Mm -hmm. and now we're starting to see that change. The, the certifications these courses have been a big part of that, you know, and we have, you know, a handful of full-time, Two to three or so full time coaching businesses in western North Carolina now, which is then those are relatively new and you know with the ad, the advent of these bike parks and amazing places to ride, i think especially jumps we're starting yeah. to see we're starting to see a willingness for people to raise their hand and say yep i don't know what i'm doing i need I need a lesson right i, I guess me
1: it's like it's it's more like relatively i would agree with you like i think i think the industry in a whole as a whole people are still have been resistant to taking lessons or they weren't even aware that you could even take a lesson so it's like you can't be resistant to something if you're not even aware that you can do it in the mm-hmm. first place so i think i think partly what we've been working hard on is just trying to in- increase people's awareness that you can actually take a lesson and then now that they're aware that you can take a lesson they're gradually warming up to that idea of like oh maybe I will get a lesson I just think they're a little bit more open relatively speaking in the US compared to Australians in the UK
2: like definitely a little bit more like head in their sand here a little bit but (laughs) (laughs) it takes takes a little bit more convincing I guess some of the experiences of reasons why people come on lessons with me or with with my crew it's well firstly now it's like the new person to the sport or they've come to Mount Buller or to the region to for an experience and they're like hey take me on a ride and then they're like oh you've taught me how to ride and then they've had a good time and then they want more but then on the other side I've got riders who have ridden for years who have never thought of having a lesson and then you know they're like oh you know what I should take a lesson just to find out and then blows their mind like writers like've been writing for 20 years yeah and I've taught them some simple things and I've just given them one or two things to think about and next minute their yeah. writings just changed and they're like why did I not do that 20 years ago 10 years ago five years ago and like yeah. if I had known that knowledge then I would have been progressed my writing so I think it what? just takes a, a little bit of a, a push and sometimes like I find once I've done one lesson with someone they're now telling their mates. And they're like, you've got to do this. And then their mates see their riding improve. And yeah. so I think that word of mouth, once again, is kind of how it's working in Australia. And then uh, as the industry is growing and professionalising, people are more receptive to go, hey, I need to go get a lesson. Or they've bought the bike, they've started riding, they've maybe had a crash or two, then they're thinking, ah, oh, yeah, I think I need to learn how to ride a bike properly. So it's getting there. I think we're in this phase right now where – you know, Australia in particular is, you know, people are getting lessons. We did, a lot of companies are now doing after-school programs. You know, it's become part of the norm now of after school, you go and do your bike program. So, you know. That's cool. You know, and that's really kind of the growth right now in Australia. Is the oh, amount
1: I wish of, we had that when we were kids. Well, yeah, we kind I, of did. We went on our own.
0: Just did ourselves. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just yeah. build jumps and like, yeah. put it's timber on the club, yeah. 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 Well, exactly. well, you know, in the, in the states, we're seeing that as well. And I think you're you're hitting on something that's really important. Is that there's a new generation of mountain biking and mountain bikers that are that are happening right now. And it's it's this kids, you know, the teenagers, mm-hmm. the especially you know here in the states through the pandemic, you know, and post COVID. If that's if that's what where we're in, we've seen a, a tremendous growth in in kids and, and here it's been we're seeing um, NICA teams which is a, a high school race race series uh, that's uh, throughout the, the states is this um, branded and, and supported network of statewide rate you know, race teams you can opt in to be a be a team and there's coaches uh, that get trained up in-house and here in our, our small community of Boone we have um, between 40 and 50 kids high schoolers and middle schoolers that, that are on the Nike team and they practice at least two nights a week and they go to races and so cool. it's, it is cool. You see, you're like genuinely seeing kids learning, learning to ride their bikes on a local trail system. And, you know, from age eight or seven to, um, riding the hardest trails that same system three, four years later, Right. And you're getting, to, getting to see that and I think the phenomenon around it is where we're the, the instruction is becoming visible and progression is becoming yeah. vis- visible and to parents, you know, they're seeing, starting to see, um, a mountain bike club or Nike or whatever it is like soccer, you know, or, yeah. or other ball sports. It's, it's, sports. it's, it's, And it's like when we, you know, when we were coming into mountain biking, it was this rogue activity out in the woods and nobody really knew what it was unless you're on the inside. You know, now it's, now there's, you know, the safety's increased, risk management's increased, trails have have become awesome, bikes have become awesome. And the byproduct that I think is really cool is that parents are seeing this, they're supporting it, um, willing to put put their money into good bikes and equipment for their kids. But then they're like, well... I'd like to go ride my bike with my kids too, you know, and that's, and then they, they, I think, start looking for their own instruction. And I think that's, that's a, a, a characteristic of this new, this new era that we're in. And I think it bodes well for anybody that wants to get in, into coaching here in the States for sure.
1: Yeah. I like that. I think, and I think that's where the coaching side of things has really, really helped. And, you know, and it's, yeah, if you think so sort of traditionally, like, if the, if the parents biked or were outdoorsy, then the kids were more likely to do it. And it was, it was less likely that if the parents didn't do that, the kids probably wouldn't do that. Whereas now with all these coaches, a higher awareness of coaching and, and now kids can go biking even if their parents have never done it. And I think that kind of speaks to that dynamic that you're talking about. Christian is, is that's, you know I think that's where the next generation is coming from is it's it's not necessarily always the parents taking the kids out now it's it's in some cases it's kind of reversed right totally yeah Mm yeah I was was thinking too like with you know I want to talk about surfing like because in Australia I find that like I've always thought because my wife's Australian and and when we go to Corumban or the Gold Coast or Byron Bay like it's just like jaw-droppingly gorgeous, and then I'm sitting on a beach, and I'm like, "Why would I ever go mountain biking?" <laughs> <laughs> like If I grew up here, I wouldn't even know what a mountain bike was, or why you would even do it. Like, and if you think of Australia, like like ninety percent of the population lives on the coast, something like that. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. So I feel like in Australia, inherently mountain biking has a harder task just because everyone lives on an island and most of the people on the island live on the beach and the beach is stunning. So they're probably going to go surfing or, or swimming with a board, which is what I like to call it. Um But would you, would you, can you speak to that maybe in America, Christian? Like we, what are the other distractions for the other options where kids or adults, um, you know they don't see mountain biking as a first option, and and obviously that's where coaching is helping. But would you say there's a similar situation in the US where, like Australia, it's well maybe I'll start with China. Like, would you agree with that assessment? Would you?
2: Yeah, I mean the coasts uh, like Australian Australia is known for its beaches, right, and its surfing and that culture, and that's been around forever. I think biking. Now, like back in the day, was you had to drive endless hours to the mountains to ride. Um, whereas now, bike park, biking is sort of coming to the population where there's little urban bike parks are popping up, so it's starting to get in front of people's faces a bit more. Um, yeah, that, definitely. That makes sense. I think, like I remember, kind of, like I reckon the tipping point for Australia in mountain biking was the, the Listfield Park in Melbourne was built for mountain biking for the uh, Commonwealth Games in 2000, I think it was. Yeah. And that brought mountain biking to the population of a couple of million people, and then all of a sudden the change the perception of mountain biking. And from there, I've always seen that as the new breeding ground for mountain biking because it's green trail, accessibility, anyone can do it, families, enthusiasts. So from there, mountain biking kind of just went, oh, wow, this is cool. You didn't have to go to the mountains for it. It wasn't extreme downhill. It's not this massive trip. Yeah, it's not a massive trip anymore. It became I can drive 10 minutes down the road to some trail and have a good time and then drive home. Uh, And I think a lot of these surf coast environments now, because there's usually beaches and then there's hills behind them. And what I've seen definitely in the last five years is more trail networks getting developed in those communities um, there's some great stuff happening in New South Wales at the moment on the coast, where there's they're building trails so you can go surfing in the morning and then bike in the afternoon, or vice versa. You know, so they're bringing these adventure activities together in one place. I feel
1: like Gap Creek in Brisbane,
2: like that's mm. literally on the edge of the city, really. Yeah, so and that's just where a lot of councils, land managers are starting to see the benefit of like, well, well, in Australia, a lot of the mountain biking occurred for legal products, illegal trails, and it became bigger and bigger. And then obviously they tried to shut down trail centres close to population, but now it's got to a point where we'll, instead of fighting against it, let's work with them. And now we're seeing all along the coast, like, trail centres pop up so and surf and live that ultimate lifestyle, really. Mm. Like, you can go for a swim after a ride or go for a ride and ride down to the beach. And- or if the surf's rubbish, you can go biking. Yeah.
1: That's the thing I find with surfing. Like- because, I mean, I, I don't, I try, I've tried to surf, like learning to surf when you're 40 is, is just, you know, highly not recommended. <laughs> <laughs> Way too difficult. Man, bike it's so much easier. But that's kind of my point is like, so many people in Australia surf mm-hmm. and surfing is so hard. There's such a higher sort of barrier of entry to it. And I'm thinking, God, if all these people surf, like a mountain biking's there and it's on their doorstep and arguably it's way easier like you know that kind of shows that there's this really healthy active population if we can maybe steal some of those surfers turn them into mountain bikers a little bit you know and then they've got something to do when the surf is shitty or the water's full of jellyfish which seems to happen all the time in Australia um I know is that is there a similar kind of paradigm in The US with that, like compared you know, other sports that are kind of competing with mountain biking?
0: Well, I think that there's a host of competing sports, you know, at any given school, there's middle schools and high school are full of, you know, pretty much any kind of sport that a kid would want to, want to do. And I think to Shannon's point though, the the biggest thing I've seen is the access, you know, and not not having immediate access. And if you're, I think case in point, um, Boone is a great case study in this, in the, in this 2006, when I started teaching at the university here, I could count the number of people that mountain bikes regularly on under a two dozen, yeah. you know, in, in our, in our area, you know, in, in, 2006, you know, and we're on the edge of the national forest. We have, you know, world-class back country, remote trails, you know, all between here and Asheville and to Brevard and it's, you know, amazing terrain. And if you wanted to go ride there, you needed to know where to go and you probably needed somebody to take you. Right. And so the, 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 group of people that did that was very, very small. There certainly were no, no kids doing it. You know, and the, the number of kids that I knew at the high school at the time that rode mountain bikes was exactly two like <laughs> literally literally two <laughs> wow. and, and on a regular basis. So I'm not sure there's kids had, had bikes, but you know, and it, and it wasn't, you know, in our County that our, 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 our government officials and it's in our tourism agency decided to create a mountain bike park um, specifically for tourism as it's, as a tourism amenity and um the side effects of creating that was an amazing place for locals to um, realize that they were part of a mountain bike community, you know? And so we, we, we'd have in 2000, 2010, when the uh, Rocky knob was construction was started to 2011, it was open and it went from those two dozen people that were the core riders to now we have 50 kids on a NICA team that ride out there, you know, in the season, at That's least great. two times, at least two times a week, you know, and our parking lot's full all the time. You know, it's just, we, we've got people that are, you know, in the past 10 years have discovered mountain biking and are, are now, you know, absolutely stoked on it. And, you know, ride right at the, at the bike park, but the public bike park, um, you know, on a, on a daily basis, and the other, the other piece to this, I think it's really important to, to see is that like it, the, the the success with that is now being replicated all over North Carolina. You know, we're, we're seeing that the same thing happened at, at Burn park. If you've seen, you've seen the you know, the media on um, at that and in Canton and fire mountain in Cherokee and elsewhere, other communities are starting to see the value of being able to put mountain biking in the, in the view of the public,
1: easy—it's sort of that positive feedback loop, right? Like totally. one place does it, the other place sees it, and then it just sort of
0: rolls on. Well, yeah, and you start looking at the you know the economic impact of this, and it's it's hard to it's it's hard to disagree with with that. You know, our our study here at, at our bike park, we're looking at it, it five years ago, um, and the two point five. Ish million dollars annually contributed to our county just because of the bike park. Yeah, you know, as a, for a small rural county, that's that's a that's that's a it's a big number for us. And the our county leadership and the our tourism folks were um, have seen this so um, dramatically behind it that they invested in a Veld Solutions pump track for us. You know, completely funded by tourism dollars. We have this beautiful paved pump track now with you know other amenities and and the minis coming just as as a testament to that you know the importance of of biking in our in our community yeah that's that's amazing
1: hey i want to just um shift gears a little bit because because i know shannon has a pretty cool background with coaching some of the big dogs here in australia i know he works with caroline buchanan and um, he does some really interesting work with events management and events building, and he has his own event highline. Um, so I wanted to just give Shannon a chance to maybe tell us a little bit more about your work managing those events in Australia, and and how your coaching background has kind of helped you helped you in that process. Yeah,
2: um, I mean, event management was something I'd sort of kind of came about organically with what I do with bike shops and coaching and, you know, I come a bit of a sucker for opportunities sometimes and, you know, pushing the industry here in Australia and um, Highline became a product a few years ago uh, to push the freeride world uh, in Australia. Uh, I had a young fella, well he's, well, he's in his early 20s now, but, He's been working for me since he's fourteen, but he's in the he's into slope style, and you know I just know that, and he's a, you know he's a, he's been coaching and guiding for, for me for years, and you know he's always told me about his aspirations to you know compete worldwide on slope style too, but there's no pathway for that here in Australia, so you know a few years ago I was sort of built some jumps up in Mount Buller and had a bit of a jam for the slope guys and just to just test the waters and. From there, this product of Highline grew for slopestyle events, um, free ride, gravity. Just that culture, like it's like a mini Crankworx, essentially. So it's basically it's no not a new model, but it's just a bringing that flavor of discipline to Australia um, because we haven't had it before. This is kind of like what we're talking about timely with the coaching world, but this timely discipline needs to be pushed. So. I invested my time and effort to build these courses myself, um, design the product, design the event, um, everything from the back end to the front end and manage it all. But, you know, part of my motivation is to develop riders in this area uh, of freeride, you know, and for me as a coach, it's testing my ability of an area that, you know i guess we can look at maybe in the future is how do we teach free ride like how yeah. do, you know it's i'm using all my skill set and experience of what i know and how i ride and how to teach jumps for instance and then isn't it just like watch this yeah just follow <laughs> me and just just tip your head back you know like just how you flip and rotate just dip your shoulder just just yeah so you know, for me, it's a, it's a really exciting opportunity to build this product. But at the same time, I'm creating these camps. Like we we did this women's free ride momentum camp with Caroline Has um, that Was that at Highline? That was at Highline yeah. to develop women in the sport in Australia. So we got 10 girls turned up. We just invited. We actually had to search high and low to find any kind of female that was interested in jumps and slope style and we invited them to this camp and it was supported by a few major brands in Australia uh, or world brands Trek and Red Bull as well but you know we we brought together so we could have these women learn safely on stuff they've never ridden before and then jump into first ever comp a month later at the festival that we ran, which ended up being the world's first women's FB division event. That's sick. And wow. so we created this environment, you know, for me to have that was a goal achieved to have a development product uh, in Freeride. But also, I've got the Gravity product where I can coach as well. But at the same time, I'm building the park so I can have uh, trainable, ter- well, usable terrain to train on. 'Cause that's what I found everywhere I've gone. I don't have like networks that are actually usable to train people on the way I'd like to, like jump proper jump lines, you know, drops or trail that you can actually highlight skill on. So how um, did your like coach's mind?
1: influence the build process like what are some examples
2: uh perfect example if we talk about size and shape of jumps you know like obviously we know and we speak about how to ride it but then i'm like well i want to build to that size and shape for the speed so that that in my mind as a coach it's like well i know what the perfect tabletop looks like with the jump i want to have that perfect transition and, and look and feel of a ramp and a lip whereas you go to a lot of trail centers you generally end up with a transition and maybe a ramp, or especially in Australia, we don't have very well built jumps. Um, so then, yeah, example. That,
1: that makes sense. Like,
2: because uh, we in in
1: in pmbi we talk a lot about the three Ss: like size, shape, and um, speed, and yeah. how those three Ss kind of work together. Because mm. a lot of the time, I'll find a jump that's like the right size, but it's the wrong shape. Yeah, or it's the right size and shape but it's it's the wrong speed. The trail is too fast for that size and shape. Yeah. So the, the trail builder hasn't really – they factored in one of the S's, but they haven't factored in all three of the S's. Yeah,
2: that's a perfect way of looking at it, and that's the way I see it, and just as a rider I understand what speed I need for a size and shape of a jump, so – Building jumps and, for instance, other products like, you know, not just building raw track that amplifies position and and grip so people have to get low and wide or have to angulate at the same time to highlight stability through turns. Big flat corners. Yeah, just lots of open higher speed flatter turns, which you don't see anymore. Um, No. And then my uh,
1: my favourite trail was in Blue Mountain in Ontario and one year they just got this green ski run it's just a grassy slope pretty mellow pitch and they just pegged in left and right hand turns all the way down this massive green slope it was like still to this day like one of my I think someone got really hurt on it and they had to shut it down because people can't (laughs) deal with flat corners
2: but it was like one of my favorite tracks anyway sorry no that's it's a good point because like flat turns are becoming less existent in trail centers they're all banks or supported or there's like lots of room to you know just to lean in so uh and like some of the feedback i had in the first downhill race i had held up there is that people said oh you really have to use your skill to ride this track and i was like yeah goal achieved i was like i wasn't just going to build a four-line track where you just pure gravity is going to pull you down like the right feedback was like, hey, I had to really use my skill to get hold speed or, you know, generate speed. I had to pump here. And there's design process around my trail building. That, so know, it's hard, but it's not necessarily dangerous. Yeah. So yeah. it's not – I didn't build tracks to be super hard. I designed them so if you want to race them, they're going to be hard. If you And you have to use your skill and be smart about how you link the trail. Yeah. So if you want to get faster down that section, you have to hit this line you have to generate speed here to get the speed down there but Mm -hmm. just riding it it's fun and that's the hard thing about what i wanted to challenge riders is building tracks that don't necessarily are the hardest tracks it's like if you they're hard to race
1: yeah you know so they're safe to ride down but if you want to like get that extra second or whatever yeah and I, i can see that in your riding like when i follow you like you you can just see that background in racing that you have just the the ease at which you carry speed is um it's a little frustrating for me personally but
0: (laughs) (laughs) it's it's really cool it's it's really cool to watch shannon that's a cool um way to build build a trail from a coaching perspective and i think it's um it's really speaking to like a new era of of technical trail riding like it it, in the in, in the past in the 90s technical trail riding meant Janky roots and and you know just like hard like very very difficult maybe slower yeah. speed kind of things, but this the technicality here you're talking about is how you're linking all of the skills to make the right thing happen for the speed that you need to to win or or whatever. Exactly,
2: yeah. like for me, like it's just a challenge in itself to design trail and you maximize the terrain too uh with the land I have to use, but. At the same time, I'm thinking about how do I use this terrain to coach? How do I use it to in, for people's pleasure, uh, to advance people's riding? So that's been my thought process the whole time through this Highline product is it's a prime, private property, so it's not an open facility just to anyone to ride. It's designed purposely for events and for development. How, how many riders did you have at Highline last year? Uh, as far as riders go, we had close to 500, and then we had up to a couple of thousand spectators coming wow. to Wow. Yeah.
0: super uh, cool
2: super cool and like it's turned into an absolute beast and a, and a product on its own and mm. you know sometimes you have an idea and sometimes it doesn't quite go anywhere mm. but this idea and this push of the industry of this side of the industry has just exceeded my expectations and it's just mm. gone further so uh, that's so cool man T- tell us a little bit about your work with caroline because i know you've worked with her a little bit and yeah, like she she's an amazing woman. Uh, I've met her when she was 14. And uh, for me, like my first introduction was actually getting her uh, her first sponsorship. Uh, at the time, I was racing for free agent BMX bikes in Australia, and I was managing a team. That's and there. we wanted to bring some new riders through, some juniors. And so we brought her on board. She was this cute little girl in Canberra, and she was doing really well. And, um, you know, and then we brought on another fellow, Daniel, who was in Victoria, both, like, young up-and-comers. Let's support them with some products and then just mentor them. And then, yeah, so through that age of me racing BMX and then for her, like, just bringing her up through the ranks and just mentoring her along the way as a team manager but also as a coach was super exciting. Uh, And then we both, like – Four cross came into you know into the world and you know I jumped hard into that because I was like hey this is the perfect mix of BMX and mountain bikes for me mm. and then Caroline jumped into that as well so I built her a custom mountain bike at the time um, trying to help her parents out you know obviously you know didn't want to spend too much money investing in a new sport but you know got her into the four cross world teaching her how to move on the bike how to hit things at speed different surface. Uh, you know, even Threadbow back then had four cross races. Like, I remember traveling here a lot for national champs. Oh, yeah, so they did have a four cross track. That's it, it was pretty fun and wild. And you know, this there was about a five year period of four cross that her and I went to a lot of races together with uh, a lot of BMX races. And then, kind of in that period, she kind of just developed in her own way, um, as a professional rider. And for a female BMX rider back then, it was you know, it's pretty hard for them to get deals, sponsorship, money and travel, but she worked hard at developing herself as a pro rider and putting herself out there to, to get there. So along the way, you know, moving years ahead, like I've basically been a mentor for her, um, big brother in some ways to just keep her mind and thinking around how she rides a bike, um, just even her psyche around just some of the bigger events that she's been at recently and some of the uh, setbacks for injuries, um, just showing that support as, as a person, but also as a coach. And especially in her recent years of Crankworks and that development there, where trying to trying to pull out the BMXer out of her and instill the mountain biker in her. So, cause she's very strong and very uh, stiff in some ways but they're trying to loosen her up in her riding style so she can push through flat turns to be able to feel terrain and, and allow tires to move underneath her and but else and it give her some stuff to work on at home uh, in her that, own time. That's because we were watching the the World Red Bull
1: um pump track yeah, world Championships the other night and, and mm-hmm. Caroline was eighth. She was, you know, eighth that out of the world at pump track and she was on a mountain bike, not a BMX. So pretty impressive result. <laughs> wow. Especially. Yeah, especially considering her shoulder is still sore from, hucking in front flips yeah. in yeah. Europe somewhere, which, which was incredible as well. But tell me what you – tell the listeners what you were saying the other day about um, when we were watching that. You were talking to me about her cornering or – Yeah.
2: And- so for her, like – I've been training her to not drop her outside foot because in BMX the strongest position through a big turn is drop the outside foot to be strong.
1: Like this big swooping,
2: yeah, big. You know, yeah. first, second. You know, there's only three corners on a, you know, on a BMX track, right? But in mountain biking, dropping the outside foot, as we know, is not ideal. And you know, it's you know, yeah, it's an extra movement we don't want to kind of create, but. She has a tendency to, you know, when it's in the moment and, you know, she'll drop the outside foot because it's a default of what's been ingrained in her. So over time, I've been trying to get her to level feet out and just try and rotate, rotate her hips, try and rotate. Specifically for berms, we're talking here. Specifically for berms and high-speed berms. Yeah. Um, Because as we know, that's the best position stability to hold speed is low, push with feet, push in and out or push out of turn uh, to create that speed and hold stability. So... For me, like, I'm like, come on, Caroline, like, she'll fall into that trap again. And that's where, like, say, in a jewel slam at Crankworks recently, you know, she's lost speed through that habit of dropping the outside foot. Um, But we've been trying to train of level feet and pushing through grass turns. So, you know, even as a high end athlete for her, you know, she's still trying to work on that psyche mentality of how to change her strong, what feels strong to her. Mm. But at the same time, we, you know, we can try and, Teach them otherwise to improve their riding, but yeah, with her shoulder at the pump track worlds, like you know, she pushed through a pretty weak shoulder. But I can see just knowing her style, she wasn't as powerful as she usually was because she had a weak shoulder. Um, yeah, you
1: could see that she she looked.
2: Yeah, she didn't have that usual gesture. True power, she yeah. usually does. That, that
1: sort of attack mode. Yeah. yeah.
2: And she's come off a big season, lots of injuries and just, you know, queen of Crankworks, which is, you know, one big box she's ticked and been trying for years. That was amazing. And, you know, to come back and sit in third with lots of points and then to, you know, strategize through each event at Crankworks Rotorua, like she just had this game plan and she stuck to it and she, you know, and that's what it takes yeah. in the world of athletes these days is like. Strategizing, knowing your strengths and weaknesses on the bike. How do you plan your race to get those points to win? You know, gold overall. And
1: she, she's a phenomenal athlete. She did, she did incredible this year. Hey, just just for a little coachy chat, like when when are there times where you where you say to Caroline or your other students, like when can they drop their outside pedal? Because for us, we're always like pros and cons rather than absolutes. So. Just, just for the sake of our listeners, when when would you fit that around and say, hey, you know, maybe we can drop our pedal there?
2: Uh, yeah, it's such a big topic, eh? Hey, yeah, we, we could do We could do a whole podcast. <laughs> well, I'll try and keep it short. Pedal. <laughs> <laughs> when when and if to drop the outside pedal? Because I think, as we know as coaches, we get asked that question all yeah, the time. I know, yeah. And, and how I just it. know they're going to be listening, going, oh, so I'm not allowed to drop the outside pedal? You
1: are. It's more just yeah. when and how much.
2: Yeah. So naturally, we're going to the feet will drop our outside will occur it's not a purposely done thing but to purposely do it is flat off camber high speed turns yeah you know, so you know if we are going to drop it or if we are in a we're trying to hold a line at a higher speed we can drop that outside foot to keep that back wheel tracking so mm. it's probably the easiest way to say it like the simplest without yeah over- well no that's good
1: like one example is always a nice place to start yeah. it's sort of when do you do something how much do you do it Sometimes it's easy just to say, well, here's one example where we can try to do it. Oh, yeah.
2: Just watch Kvarac.
0: Yeah. He's yeah. probably
2: the best. So. Yeah. <laughs> just do what he does. Yeah, just do that. <laughs> just follow him.
0: Yeah. 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 Well, cool. Hey, um, before we wrap up here, unless, Paul, you have any other other thoughts or questions? No, um, I'm all good. I'd, maybe we put Shannon on, on the spot here with, um, to talk about Talk about an Australian donut that you that you enjoy.
2: Ooh. Australian donut, Jeez. Look, I'm a sucker for just your classic cinnamon donut. Um, it, as long as they're warm and they're freshly made, that's where it's at. Um, is there is there a shop in Mansfield that? Uh, no, not in Mansfield, unfortunately. Um, there is during winter on well, Mount Buller, there's Bula, another business idea. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> donut shop I'd, in Mansfield. I'd, I'd, I'd eat all the profits. You yeah. get your pets to do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but there is during winter on Mount Buller, there's a donut guy that sits there, and all he does is cinnamon donuts all day. Oh, really? And he cooks them there on the spot. Oh. And you can get like a bag of six, and it's just to die for. It's like you're cold, you're hot. Oh, sorry, you're cold, you're in the winter environment, and it's like the best feeling like at the end of a run or the day, I'm going to get those donuts. Mm. And just like the warm <laughs> cinnamon donut, is just you can't beat in those moments. Um I've had some good donuts over the years. There's been one that came with – trying to think it had like this caramelized dressing and it had some <laughs> honeycomb <laughs> tips on top and then it had this sort of some sort of cream i'm just trying to think the, this little cream dollop on top you know and then a little bit of custard inside at the same Ooh, time custard wow. inside that. Um, Oof, that
0: gets me well so Shannon, yeah you're you're proving you're proving the point that that donuts are healthy because because uh, they make you happy, and happy is healthy. Yeah.
1: So, there we go. <laughs> doing, we, we, should, we should print up T-shirts that says that. that, says that. <laughs>
0: there <laughs> we go. <Yeah. laughs> I love it. All right, y'all. That brings us to the end of this episode of the Mountain Biking Coaching Podcast. Uh, we hope you enjoyed this discussion with Shannon Rademacher, of All-Terrain Cycles. Shannon, um, where can people get in, in touch with you?
2: Yeah, you can jump on the All Train Cycles website and there's emails through there or our socials and also for the Highline, mtb.com.au and through the Highline socials too. So yeah, you'll find me at the other end of those.
0: Sweet. Well, thanks. Um, Everyone, thanks for listening. We hope that this has added some value to your own coaching practice. And if you have any thoughts or questions, leave them in the comments for us. Otherwise, be safe, ride smart, and we'll see you on the trails. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show and that it sparked some ideas for your writing and your coaching. As always, our approach to coaching is on pros and cons, not rights and wrongs. And with that in mind, our podcast is meant to be more of a conversation about topics and techniques rather than a final say in how to ride or how to teach. As always, please take care of using or applying any of the techniques discussed in this podcast. Stay safe, write smart, and we'll see you next time.